From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, welcome to Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Well, ostensibly, ostensibly is a great word to use. I don't think we ever used it in the podcast, but ostensibly, we are one week closer to the start of the school year, but uh, the picture is every bit as murky as it was when we talked about it last week. And I feel like that's where we need to kick off here this week is just to kind of talk about the reopening debate and talk about some of the fallout from reopening. Clark, you had some interviews uh, this week with teachers, including uh, the state's reigning teacher of the year. Really interesting comments that she had that uh, are, are maybe reflective of some of the thoughts in, in, in around the state. Yeah, I did. Uh, thanks, Kevin. I um, This week I was able to slow down and not attend as many daily meetings and kind of take a step back and look at where things are now. And so you're right, I did te- talk with Idaho Teacher of the Year, Stacy Lawler, uh, who teaches physical education at um, Timberlake Junior High in the Lakeland School District. I spoke to her and, and, and she said she's nervous uh, about the return to school. Uh, and, and she's not the only teacher who told me that this week. But the idea with the story was I wanted to sort of take a step back now that we've got the non-binding guidance that the State Board of Education and Governor Brad Little issued last week, which we talked about on last week's podcast, more or less encouraging or very much encouraging public schools to reopen in the fall or at the end of the summer. Now that that guidance is out there, I wanted to talk to the teachers that will be out there, you know, on the front lines having to implement it and work with students. And uh, I was able to talk with about five or six different teachers from all different parts of the state. And we'll just start with Teacher of the Year, Stacey Lawler, and and go from there. But I I had a long conversation with her. I'd actually met her when she came to the legislature earlier in 2020 and and got the big round of applause um, um, when she was singled out, I believe, during the State of the State address. Um, and, And so we had kept in touch a little bit, but I reached out to her and I said I wanted to talk and see if she'd seen the plan. She'd seen the plan. And I wanted to get her reaction, and, and Stacy told me that I need to know we have a plan for keeping everybody safe. She said, I'm nervous. I'll be honest. I miss my students. I miss the structure of school, but I'm nervous right now. And a lot of other teachers had real similar things to say. They, they miss their students most of all. Um, they know that the value of having a teacher in the classroom that can interact with students is vitally important to the education system. Depending on where they lived, you know, there may have been some challenges with distance or remote learning in the spring, and so they want to come back. Uh, They miss their students. You know, education is a calling uh, for many of them. It certainly is, we've documented, um, not the most lucrative (laughs) career path out there in America today. And, And so teachers really want to get back to their students but they're nervous. They're nervous about what their classrooms are going to look like. And, and as we pointed out last week, the state reopening plan, some of it's incomplete. It doesn't talk about the liability issue, for instance. Um, it leaves that decision to be decided another day. Um, and then it leaves a bunch of the specifics to the local school districts and the local charter schools. But teachers are wondering, you know, okay, what do we have to do because school, the first day is only four weeks away for some districts, basically. Mm-hmm. What do we have to do between now and then to make it safe? And so they know they want to know 
how do we handle lunches? How do we handle the passing periods? Uh, what are what is the school bus route going to look like? If I am used to having 30 kids in a classroom and it already kind of felt crowded before the pandemic, what's that going to be like now? Um, and when I talked to Stacy Lawler, you know, she said her family's been really vigilant about following these safety precautions during the pandemic. She said she hasn't been out to eat to a restaurant since February. She watches church services online on Sunday. Her and her family and her children are really diligent about wearing masks and about the social distance guidelines. And she said, you know, depending on what part of the state they're in and how old they are, it may be hard for students, even if they want to, Uh, to adhere to social distance guidelines, to wear those masks. And she said it's going to be hard for teachers. She was thinking about when they had to do their sudden goodbyes in March when, when the virus was first confirmed in Idaho. And as you reported, Kevin, many schools very quickly pivoted to remote or online learning. And then the state board followed up a couple of days later with that initial order of closing schools. But, but Stacy Lawler said it was heartbreaking because she knew she might not see some of those kids again because it was the end of the year and they were moving on and they wanted to give hugs and high fives and, and she just couldn't do that. And so everybody's going to have to kind of retrain themselves with going back to think about all these new situations and considerations. You know, Lawler said she's lucky. She's a PE teacher. Her plan yeah, is I'm- to do as much outdoors as she can right now, but she knows that not everybody can do that. And so, and that that was, to me, that was one of the striking things as I read the story and, and looked at what she said in your interview with her is that this is mechanics and it's logistics. And in her case, as a PE teacher, it's a a lot easier to maintain social distancing and keep kids six feet apart in a PE class, as opposed to a fourth grade class or a high school English class where it is, you know, it's logistically going to be impossible to keep every kid six feet apart. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I talked to teachers from Valley View and Moscow. I talked to an English teacher from Blaine County uh, where the outbreak was sort of bad uh, right at the beginning. And they wonder about, you know, if, if teachers get exposed and they have to quarantine, what's going to be the plan for sick leave? If multiple teachers in a school you know, heaven forbid, get exposed and multiple teachers in one building have to quarantine. What's the availability of long-term subs and, and who's going to pay for that? I, I spoke with um, Aaron Paradis, a, a music teacher in the Valley View School District, and mm-hmm. she's involved with the Idaho Education Association. And she said, I want more than anything to be back in the classroom with my students. I love my students. I miss them so much. But my number one priority is safety. And so she wonders, you know, with 30 kids or 50 kids in a room singing, what, what's that going to be like? How does she sanitize, you know, wood blocks and, and melody makers and things like that between classes? Um, and, and so it's there's a lot of considerations. And, and we are getting closer to the start of the school year. And, and I think people are starting to realize that uh, you know, I, this, I don't even think this made it in the article, but I spoke with John Thomas, who teaches English in Blaine County, and he said, you know, at the beginning of the summer, maybe there was some optimism that this wouldn't be this bad, or, or, or maybe this would be more under control. Um, and then this part did make it into the story, but he said, 
I'm worried because it doesn't seem like people are wearing masks long enough and often enough to nip this thing in the bud. So it sounded like, you know, maybe some folks were more optimistic in the summer or as the state was in sort of the lockdown or the early stages of the Idaho rebounds plan versus Kevin, as you've tracked, you know, we've, we've reset the single day record for new confirmed and probable cases several times over the past week. And so I think a lot of this is coming to a head right now. It it really is. And, you know, let's jump in and talk about those numbers really quickly because they've almost become the new normal. Um, You know, when I was doing some reporting this week, I went back and looked. So you go back to June 17th, and this was when Governor Little put together that, uh, that committee to look at school reopening issues. At that point, the state had 3,654 confirmed or probable coronavirus cases. And maybe more important than that raw number is that really what we were seeing day to day was the increases weren't that weren't that much. I mean, we were getting a couple, you know, a couple dozen cases. Uh, we weren't having, you know, big, you know, big outbreaks. I mean, we were having some outbreaks, uh, but they were fairly localized. That was 3,600 or so cases, and that was just a month ago. Where we are right now on July 17th is that we're above 13,200 cases. The case numbers have more than tripled in a month, and we are seeing you know, big outbreaks. We're seeing you know, weekly you know, spikes in Ada County, in Canyon County, in Kootenai County, uh, you know, where you know, every week is a new high in, in cases in, in three of the largest counties of the state, and, and I suspect we're going to see more of those kind of numbers uh, come Friday afternoon when we get you know, the final numbers for the week, and I, and I try to put them together in my blog, the numbers are, you know, they, they don't favor a, a lot of, uh, you know, they don't, in general, a lot of optimism in the idea of reopening schools and reopening schools as normal. I mean, you know, when, when teachers are expressing concern, they're looking at some numbers that, that back that up. Yeah, and it's like you said, the audio glitched just a little bit, uh, but we're over 13,000 um, cases right now as we stand on on July 17th. But maybe is that a good way to segue into your piece this week, looking more at the mechanics of opening and the politics of opening? Uh, is this a good time to get into? Because sure, sure. uh, yeah. I, I think you kicked it off with the numbers, and it just makes sense to keep going down that path when we look at the reality of, of school starting and the encouragement to open in person versus where we're at right now. That was something that you really explored more uh, in detail this week, wasn't it? Yes. And, and I've been struck by the rhetoric that we're hearing in terms of reopening, uh, not just from the state, but from the federal level. Um, you know, we talked about it last week, President Trump pushing for school reopening and threatening to withhold federal funds from schools that uh, that do not reopen. Uh, Betsy DeVos, education secretary, made the rounds on the uh, the Sunday talk shows, uh, trumpeting the plan. And, and you know, I, I really sat and you know listened to it over and over. Her interview on CNN on Sunday, and I was struck that you know she she kept going back to the basic theme of we want schools to reopen, we want kids back in school. And uh, Dana Bash, uh, who conducted the interview, kept saying, I'm a parent, I agree with you. We all agree, we all want schools to reopen, but what's the plan, what are the guidelines? What do you do if there's an extended uh, 
outbreak, you know, do you, you know, do you accept the idea that schools may have to go remote if they have an extended outbreak? How, uh, you know, is the idea of a, a withholding federal funds, is that still on the table or was that just something that, uh, you know, the administration has got back off of? No real details in a 20 minute segment. And, you know, my piece, I, I link to the full interview so you can hear it for yourself. You can spend the 21 minutes uh, breaking it down for yourself and, and hear and hear what you're hearing from the, the education secretary on this topic. The rhetoric of reopening is running into some really hard numbers right now, as, as we talked about. And it's running into some real confidence issues uh, as you, you know, as you got at and you're reporting with, with, with teachers who are concerned about the reopening. We don't know yet, and we can't quantify yet exactly where our parents in this conversation. The polling indicates that a lot of parents nationally have some serious concerns about uh, about reopening, about sending their kids back to school. We'll know in a few weeks exactly where parents are in this conversation. Do they do they opt for virtual learning? And, and that's something that uh, you covered the state board talking about this week. We'll get to that, I hope. Yeah. But, you know, and, and hope, you know, are parents going to just homeschool their kids? Are they going to, you know, one way or the other, decide that it's it's safer and more stable and more predictable to make the decision now to keep keep the kids at home and know that that's the plan going forward in August and September and beyond, rather than dealing with the uncertainty and the turmoil that may come if schools open and close and open and close. So we don't know where parents are going to come down on this. And I think that's that's going to be the, the acid test here is what do parents decide to do in a month? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah parents are making this decision right now. You know, uh, even as we speak, parents are having that conversation and, and doing that soul searching. What does it mean in terms of in-person enrollment? What does it mean in terms of uh, parents opting into virtual learning, whether it's being offered by the district or whether it's being offered through a virtual charter, what do those enrollment numbers look like? Because, you know, we've heard Governor Little over and over in this process when it comes to reopening businesses talk about our economy isn't going to rebound until consumers feel comfortable and confident being back out there, being back out in the stores, in the restaurants, spending money. You know, the same thing applies to education. You know, we're not going to reboot the school system into anything that resembles a normal until teachers and parents feel comfortable and confident in, you know, in the uh, the environment. You know, do they feel that they can safely send kids back to school? Do teachers feel like they can safely uh, go back to work? Until that happens, it's not going to be anything approaching what it was before. Yeah, I think that that's a good point. And and, and you've made this, this point this week and in, in weeks past, but it's likely going to look different depending on what school district you live in, what part of the state you live in, what community you live in. The political will may be different in certain parts of the state, and the situation we know is going to be very different based on the risk and spread of the virus um, in the community that that you live in. But, you know, going back and, to reopening, I haven't even seen 
really detailed plans for, okay, if a, if a student contracts the coronavirus inside the building, this is what needs to happen and this is what needs to happen. And I haven't seen that for what happens if staff members contract the coronavirus or test positive. And I spent a lot of time this week talking with Gina Pinnell, a program manager, a project manager with Central District Health um, in the Boise area about reopening and about the health department role. We talked a bunch over the phone and over email, and I asked a lot about safety for students. And in our very last conversation, Gina suggested to me that we should ask about the safety of staff members because the evidence is that they might be more vulnerable um, than students or it might spread um, among adults more easily or more dangerously. You know, obviously the science is still emerging, but that was one thing that Gina brought up. Hey, you know, I want you to think about the staff members and the teachers. uh, And I want people to think about that, not just the students. And and she was a member of the reopening committee. And I'm going to have an interview coming out with her Sunday or Monday talking about the role public health officials will play and how they're actually bracing for many of the schools to start. Uh, The reopening plans had, they created like three different guidance based on the risk of transmission of the virus. And the public health officials I talked to are saying they expect many schools, the recommendation will be to start in the second of the three categories. Uh, and some of the recommendations on that second category, you can basically do what you want. I mean, that's the idea. School boards can come up with their own plans. Um, but some of the recommended guidance in category two would be for online blended learning, maybe limited use of physical buildings, maybe staggered schedules at the school buildings. Um, so I think that there's still a lot to decide and to figure out here as we sit mid-July. And... And you're hearing such a different set of messages. And if this is one of those points where I'm like, uh, I'm glad I'm not a parent of a school age yeah. because uh, what to believe and who to believe. Because at the same time, you're hearing from state officials and federal officials expressing hope and confidence that schools can reopen safely. What we're hearing from the medical community even right here in the Treasure Valley, is is dire. You had, you know, health officials, hospital officials hold a news conference on Tuesday. They weren't just urging the state to step in and mandate masks. They were basically pleading for the state to step in and mandate masks. I mean, they were, you know, know, they were sounding the alarm. And as I was listening to uh, Central District Health's meeting on Tuesday afternoon, when Central District Health did extend and you know, establish a mask mandate for Ada County, at least. Yeah. Um, they were hearing from um, you know, from Stephen Nemerson. He is the uh, the chief clinical officer at the, the St. Alphonsus Medical System and talking at length about the science of masks, the science of spread of coronavirus, uh, how susceptible kids are to contracting coronavirus, spreading it amongst themselves and spreading it to adults, all very important issues in terms of any kind of reopening. His bottom line, his takeaway was, we cannot really get to a point where it's going to be safe to reopen schools or safe to reopen businesses until we we act. And we've got to act now. And, And the quote that I used, and it was one of those kind of 
you know, you get these quotes sometimes and you're like, oh my goodness, <laughs> he is really serious or she is really serious. He was really serious saying, quote, the train has left the station. We are headed to become New York, California, Arizona, Houston. He's talking about if we don't act now, if we don't step in and masks are one step in his view that you, you've got to be doing, we are headed to a catastrophe. That was his words. That's not a Kevin Richard word. That is a Stephen Emerson, chief clinical officer of San Alfonso's health system, who knows more about this than, than you or I do or will ever know. Or, or, you know, this is his job. Yeah. And he's saying, we are in trouble. So when you're hearing that and you just suppose that against um, the message that you're hearing from, from state and federal officials about reopening schools, like I said in my piece on Thursday, it's a disconnect. And speaking of disconnect, you know, you, the one meeting you did cover this week that I did want to make sure we got to was a talk about the digital divide and kind of a, a recognition that, you know, we are going to have to do some digital learning this, this fall. It's, it's unavoidable. Yeah, this was interesting. I covered a state board of education meeting Wednesday. It didn't get nearly as much fanfare as the previous week's state board of education committee meeting where they released the reopening guidelines. Um, and, and I understand why this would be a little confusing to a parent or even a teacher. And I'll try to talk about why it's not as confusing maybe as it seems, but all right. So keep in mind last week, the state board and the governor said, we're encouraging and expecting public schools to reopen in the fall. And then this week on Wednesday, the state board of education unanimously approved blended learning recommendations and blended learning. If that's a new term, that's like a combination of online and distance learning with in-person learning. And we talked about how Category 2 kind of recommends that, um, especially if there would be diminished use of the physical school buildings or if there were staggered schedules like an A and B block to accommodate social distancing or to reduce capacities. And so the state board is moving ahead, adopting these blended learning recommendations. And this it wasn't a surprise. It didn't come out of nowhere. There was actually a task force working on this at the same time the task force, the other task force was working on the reopening guidelines. But I got a quote, a couple quotes from State Board of Education, Kurt Liebig, State Board of Education member Kurt Liebig, who I just want to read right now. And I think it puts it in perspective here. And the way I look at it, well, let's just get into Kurt's quote and then we'll break it down. But so Kurt says, quote, the virus will dictate how we deliver education in the fall. All of us want kids back in school, but the reality is you're probably going to have to have the ability to deliver blended learning in a way that you weren't prepared to deliver in the spring. That's the first quote. The second quote is reflecting back on blended learning in the spring. And Kurt Liebig again saying, I don't think we should have expected it, but we weren't prepared. Some districts were more prepared than others, but I would not say any district was prepared nor would I expect them to be. So this is all about the state board trying to get schools to prepare mm -hmm. for the possibility or perhaps even the likelihood that there will be blended, remote, distance, online learning, some combination of those this fall. But they also issued a warning saying, you know, they're using some stimulus money to launch a learning management system and get this off the ground. But there's estimates of a multi-million dollar program that, and and it, there's questions about how that could be sustainable going forward and who's going to pay for it once it's initially launched, especially amid an education landscape and a state budget landscape marked by 
budget holdbacks. So I don't know. I understand that no. that's confusing, but I guess Kurt's quote was really good. Everybody's hoping to come back for traditional school in the fall, but I think we need to be prepared to deliver blended learning. I, I, I think that's really where it lies. And I, I guess that's, and you know, clear as mud, right? Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a, a significant amount of blended learning in the medium and large schools, especially schools that experienced cl crowded classrooms previously. Um, but I, I, that's, I, it's best I can tell that's where things stand right now. And so we're not 100% sure what it's going to look like on August 17th or whatever the first day is in some districts. Well, I think, you know, the shorter Kurt Liebig quote is hope is not a strategy. That's and exactly you know, right. You hear people say that over and over and that, that couldn't be more true than it is right now. I mean, we all hope that schools reopen. You know, I hope I get to write about something that isn't coronavirus. <laughs> we all hope for, you know, something that resembles more like normal life. But, you know, hope is not a strategy. Right. And so we'll continue to monitor it going forward. I would say, you know, it's a good point to step back. And if you want to go to the homepage at www.idahoednews.org and take a look back at any of these stories for more details, you know, the story has more detail than we'll get into on the podcast. And then let people know that coming either Sunday evening, July 19th or Monday, July 20th, I will have a story about the role that public health officials will play basically in helping define those classifications, categories one, two, and three. I guess some schools have moved on to calling them green, yellow, red at this point, but it's those three categories. Mm -hmm. And the public health officials will help define that. They're going to give guidance to the local school boards and the local school boards take it from there. But even those, you know, a month away, those definitions aren't set. And I know a lot of schools are looking to that to say, okay, where, where do we stand? W what should we be looking at? And so this is all coming together you know, with school just weeks away. Yeah, we're going to spend a lot more time covering health boards and crunching coronavirus case numbers in the week. I mean, it's like, to come than we I don't want to be, yeah, I don't want to be flippant or, or disrespectful, but I think I heard somebody say something about building the runway while the plane is circling ahead, preparing to land. And, and maybe that's not far off. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, and, and to some degree, I think a lot of that is inevitable. I mean, yeah. I think that, yeah, there's, there's going to be a lot that has to be figured out in, in short order and in real time, you know, and, you know, you know, we will continue to cover the runoff to the beginning of the school year, knowing that it's not just covering the education aspect of it, it's covering the public health aspect of it. So if it feels like we're covering health districts and talking about coronavirus case numbers more than you would expect an education website to be doing, the two are, are, hand in hand right now. The, the two are inextricably tied. We can't talk about school reopening without talking about the public health aspect of it. So that's what we're doing. And, you know, yeah, the virus will dictate, the virus will dictate how education is delivered and the category that a school is assigned to is really going to play a role in, and maybe how the school year will, will look at the beginning of the school year. And so stay tuned for that. But if you're wondering, okay, who, who Who's going to make the decision? Who's going to answer my questions? At this point, it's in the hands of your local school board or your local charter administrator and their board. Uh, so the local level. If you're wondering, all right, what the heck is going to happen for my kid in three weeks? You know, go ask your local school district. Yeah. 
And you know, obviously the virus is going to drive our news coverage. It's going to dictate what we write about and what we uh, focus on. So that's uh, that's where we're going to be in the next, uh, you know, in the weeks and months to come here. Sure. And as I focused on some of those types of things, Kevin, you had a really broad week looking at a number of topics. You looked at, like you said, the disconnect and the politicization, politicization. Eh. Uh, the disconnect with reopening schools and how it's become political, easy for me to say. Uh, but you also looked at um, the legislature's plan uh, to maybe do a little bit more uh, of a remote uh, session or at least allow some members of the legislature to participate remotely. Uh, you followed a meeting this week and looked at a proposal. Where do things stand? Well, where it stands right now is that the, uh, the legislature is going to uh, get a technology upgrade and it's going to be funded through some of that federal coronavirus, uh, that CARES Act funding that the state received. So we're talking about 1.5, 1.25 million of that money, which is 1.25 billion is how much I believe the state is receiving. Uh, the 1.25 million for the legislature is going to uh, allow for more remote work uh, at the state house, and it could allow for some legislators to work remotely in the next few months as we have interim committees uh, working through the summer and fall, as we have new member orientation after the elections, as we have uh, leadership elections in the organizational session that also occurs uh, after the elections, after Thanksgiving. It would also be in place if there is a special session between now and January and could be in place when the session starts up for real in January. It's possible this technology is gonna be in play. And you know, it's an interesting story for us as we cover the legislature because it's going to be a, a different session, no matter what it looks like, it's not gonna look like what we've seen in past years. And it's an interesting story too, because there, there was a lot of blowback on this. And we, we saw a lot of comments on both of these stories that I wrote this week on our Facebook page, a lot of criticism and a lot of feedback from educators who are saying, hey, wait a minute, if, if the legislature, if the state is talking about us going back to work, why are we spending this money to allow the legislature to essentially work from home? And what I thought was a telling point in the meeting on Thursday, Alex Adams, who is chairing the governor's committee that's uh, divvying up all these federal dollars, he's also uh, the governor's uh, chief budget uh, budget writer, Yeah, said, yeah, I've gotten emails from teachers who aren't happy about this and are asking about, you know, why are we spending this money on, on remote legislative work? And there was a little bit of backtracking from uh, Eric Milstad of the Legislative Services Office saying the plan is not to have the whole legislature working from home. Uh, the plan is that, you know, maybe you'll have legislators who are still in the building. They may be working remotely in their offices. They may be working remotely in a, in a meeting room as opposed to all being... Um, crammed in the same committee committee meeting room or crammed onto the House floor or the Senate floor. But the wording of the proposal does make clear that you know they're anticipating the possibility that you will have some legislators working in the State House, some legislators not working in the State House come January. So it's very open-ended, it's very loose uh, in terms of how it might unfold if the money is going to be spent. The upgrades will be uh, you know, will be purchased and uh, installed, and we should see uh, some of this work happening more remotely in really the next few weeks. And we'll see what it looks like in, in January and beyond. And, you know, 
we've talked about this in the past uh, on the podcast, what what the session was like at the end in, in March of last year when the first few coronavirus cases were being reported and how you had legislators leave at the end of the session because they felt like it was unsafe for them to be on, on the floor. You, you, had, you had some legislators leave at the end of the session. You had other legislators uh, schedule a party. Uh, yeah. So the, the reaction was very different depending very on right. which legislator we're talking about. Right. And, you know, and full disclosure here, as reporters, uh, you and I decided at, uh, at the end of the session to cover the session remotely. We I got out of there. Safer to cover it, watching the stream, watching the feed from our offices or watching from home. That was a decision we made, yeah. And decisions we're going to have to make uh, going forward. You know, we don't know what covering the legislature is going to look like, and you know, that's only a few months away. So, and it's likely to process to to follow. Uh, you can go on my blog and uh, see what happened. You can look at the proposal in detail. I link to it. But uh, you know, again, another another example of how the virus is dictating pretty much all of our coverage when you get right down to it. Yeah, uh, that, that's a lot. You got one more in you, Kevin. Do you want to talk yeah. about how uh, the court battle over reclaim and the signature gathering effort and kind of the latest and where that stands? Yeah, this feels like a weekly uh, installment yeah. on the podcast, the Reclaim Idaho lawsuit. Here's where we stand. Reclaim Idaho has begun gathering signatures online. They have two federal court rulings in their favor on this. So they began the online signature gathering Early this week, they've uh, collected several thousand signatures, but the state of Idaho is still battling the signature gathering process. And on Tuesday, the state filed a motion in the United States Supreme Court asking the highest court in the land to put the signature gathering on hold. We don't know when that's going to be decided on. We don't know when there will be any word from the U.S. Supreme Court. You still have a case in the Circuit Court of Appeals, which is one step down from the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. Um, as we speak here on Friday morning, the state is uh, scheduled to, is due to make some filings here on Friday. So stay tuned and we'll have uh, an update uh, perhaps on the site here later today. Uh, we do know that there's a hearing set. Uh, oral arguments are set now for August 10th. So the case continues at the circuit court level as uh, the state tries to uh, to push for the Supreme Court to put the uh, the signature gathering on hold. A lot of courts, a lot of process, a lot there to digest. Um, go to the website and you'll get the latest on the Supreme Court appeal and the latest on the signature gathering. Yeah, and Reclaim, that's uh, those folks that were behind the successful Medicaid expansion ballot initiative uh, yeah. From a few years <laughs> earlier, and what we're they're looking really talked about what they're trying to do with yeah. this ballot initiative because it is a big deal, yeah. and it does affect K twelve. It is a uh, an initiative that would raise corporate tax rates and income tax rates for Idahoans making more than two hundred and fifty thousand a year. Uh, it would generate between one hundred and seventy and two hundred million dollars a year that would go into a special fund for K twelve. Could be used for uh, teacher salary increases. Uh, hiring teachers to reduce class sizes, all-day kindergarten, CTE programs, a, a variety of different uh, places where that money could be spent. That's what Reclaim Idaho is hoping to get on the ballot. And if it passes, you know, then you have the whole process of, uh, you know, what does the legislature do with another initiative that's been passed? Uh, long way to go. 
before that happens and, and a long way to go in the courts before we even know if this thing's going to be on the ballot. So stay tuned and keep your eye on our website and keep your eye on our Twitter feed and we'll keep you posted on the latest. Yeah. So I guess long story short, uh, slow news week. Is that the takeaway, Kevin? Yeah. Yeah, really. You know, it's just a typical <laughs> week in July where we're just, you know, you know, catching our breath, waiting for the, the first day of school, like, you know, like, like previous summers. But no, no, we, we've always been busy in the summer, but this uh, this one has been kind of nonstop. And you alluded to it. Um, this one was kind of a somewhat of a break from meetings, but uh, not completely. And we'll have more next week. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a lot that we did cover this week that we didn't get to uh, on the podcast. Uh, our Eastern Idaho reporter, Devin Bodkin, has the latest with where things stood at least earlier this week on the future of high school sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also looked at reopening plans in eastern Idaho. Uh, Bonneville, Pocatello, Chubbuck, their uh, reopening plans are, are taking shape. And so there's a bunch more news uh, that we didn't get to, um, but good stuff for sure at the homepage, and, and there will be next week as well. Uh, we are going to take a little bit of a break uh, from the podcast because I am taking a little bit of vacation next week. I'll be off. And so no podcast next week, but we will be back Friday, July 31st um, to talk about the latest with the coronavirus, the latest with the school reopening plans, the latest with higher education. We may have more clarity um, about Reclaim Idaho's initiative at that point. And really, um, August is when schools start going back. And so it'll be close at that point. So I'm going to try and catch my breath one last time. And then it's going to be like a marathon through uh, the rest of my life every day, covering <laughs> covering the, the news. Through the start of the school year and heading into the legislature, it's, it's, going, to be, uh, it's going to be busy. It already I, is, but it'll be... See, the optimistic Clark has a break for next week. And then the next break I'm looking at is like a week off for Christmas, but then it's going to be like April 2021 before I get time off. So um, don't feel bad if I don't return your call next week. It's nothing personal. (laughs) All right. But um, thanks so much for joining us. I know there's a lot going on and I know it's stressful and I know it's confusing and there aren't always clear answers, uh, whether it's (laughs) from us or whether it's from any of these guidelines and plans that we're looking at, but it means a lot that you spend your time with us and that you do uh, seek out our coverage and and listen to the podcast. We have a lot of fun, at least attempting to break down this ever complicated intersection of education policy and education politics. Uh, No show next week. We will be back July 31st. Uh, In the meantime, uh, have a good last few weeks of summer. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Stay safe and have a good week.